Good evening, everyone. I'm really delighted to welcome you all to this, my final lecture as your Gresham Professor of Law. It's a lecture that should have been delivered just before lockdown, but for good reasons, it's been put off till now. But now is the perfect time to deliver this lecture because in the course of the last year, we've really had to look long and hard about why we're at the bar and what the type of service we want to deliver to the clients that we act for. And the purpose of this, my signing off lecture, is to celebrate the hard work that's being done to make the bar an inclusive, diverse profession that welcomes men and women from all walks of life and backgrounds. Any of you that followed my four years will know that I have taught, frankly and publicly, about some of the problems we have in our working world. And I've been unafraid to confront the reasons why you should sometimes think about why the law is for you. This lecture is to explain why people like me are still doing the job we do, why we go through the process to come here and why it is the job that we dreamt of doing and why we want to carry on doing it for the rest of our working lives. This lecture is for me to deliver up what I promised I'm going to do. It's not just going to be me talking. It's me actually giving voices to people that have got experiences that aren't my own. So you get to hear about other people's journey to the bar and you get to listen and learn from our mistakes and what experiences we have to offer you. In this lecture, I am going to be joined by guests that I'll introduce to you um, shortly, but we're going to talk about why, we why we're here, what type of work we do, but most importantly, where we see the bar going in the next five years and the next decade, because the purpose of this lecture is to reach out to the barristers of the future, because you are going to be what makes the bar the thriving profession that we need it to be if it's going to continue to serve the society that we live within. So without more ado, can I please introduce you to my guests? Um, I'm going to introduce you to Mass, our youngest member, first. Mass Jai is someone that I first came across a couple of years ago because I've been following him on Twitter. And he was already coming across as a remarkably mature man who had things to offer me to think about outside of my world that I really wanted to listen to. So Mass has been on my horizon for a number of years and he's here now. And I think I was right to pluck him out for attention because he is a barrister at the government legal department. He is the founder and chairperson of Bridging the Bar, a charity dedicated to supporting aspiring barristers from underrepresented groups. In addition, in July 20, Mass became the first ever pupil barrister to be awarded Barrister of the Week by The Lawyer magazine. And in January 2021, Mass was recognised as the Advocates Pro Bono Hero of the Month for his dedication to pro bono work. So I know you're going to be delighted to listen to Mass very shortly. I'm then going to turn to Derek Sweeting. Derek Sweeting QC is the man who's the chair of our bar representative body. And when I asked him for his CV with characteristic humbleness, I had to dig and effectively was told that he was a chair of the bar. He was a deputy high court judge um, of the Queen's Bent Division as made in 2008 and very little else. So having done a little bit of Googling, I can now tell you 
that um, Derek's practice is mainly focused on contentious civil litigation and advisory work in the High Court and the Court of Appeal. But really interestingly, he works in cases related to maximum severity personal injury and clinical negligence work and is regularly instructed by the Attorney, Gen Attorney General in recent years, in particular in relation to claims arising from the Iraq War. And in due course, I'm going to ask him whether that's the type of work he thought he'd be doing when he first came um, and clambered into the walls of the inn to become the barrister described in the legal directories as fantastic with clients, very effective at explaining matters, concise in court where he can turn the evidence well. He's also a bencher of Middle Temple and um, is a long-term proponent and supporter of the Legal Aid Bar. So that's Derek. Then we're going to move on to my friend and colleague, Bree Stevens-Hoare of Queen's Council. Bree is a magnificent woman who I've had the total pleasure to work alongside and seen grow along with me in terms of our work at the Bar. Bree is a leading real estate, uh, estate silk recommended in the Legal 500 and Chambers UK. She's previously been recognised as Barrister of the Year in the Modern Law Awards, Chambers UK Real Estate Silk of the Year Awards, and she's an individual member of the class of 20, uh, 2021, identified as a woman of influence and power in the Law UK Awards. Now that goes to show how we regard her within a professional community, but what you also need to know to understand why she's my friend is that she is a phenomenal woman who's an activist as well. She's a founding partnership in the Free Bar, at the um, Free Bar, how do I say that Brie? I'm going to say it again. She's free Bar. Founding, yeah, she's a founding participant of the Free Bar, which is the LGBTQ network. She's a member of the Lincoln's Inn Equality and Diversity Committee. She's the joint chair of the Black Inclusion Group, and she is someone who's both created and is responsible for delivering the BARS Leadership Programme. She is a phenomenal woman, and I'm proud to know her. She has introduced me to her colleague, Toby Coop. Toby is someone who um, has been very humble about why he's part of this platform, and having learnt about him more, I can tell you that that humbleness is characteristic of him, but entirely unwarranted because he is a superb man who comes from a humble background who is now someone who is identified as a leading junior by both the Chambers UK and the Legal Aid which are our bar directory awards. Um, he's instructed on behalf of claimants and defendants in equal measure in high value personal injury litigation which generally arises out of accidents on the road at work and in public places. In 2018 Toby was appointed junior counsel to the Crown and he's a secretary of the Henry Scott Fund, which he's gonna tell you more about later. So they are the people that I've chosen to be with me on this final um, farewell. And I hope having heard from us over the course of the next 50 minutes, you'll understand why. So thank you very much for your attention. Um, and I'll move over to the lecture now. Um, the first topic I'd like to really to ask my guests is going to be their journey to the bar. So I'm going to start off with the most senior and the most important amongst us. So that actually means you, Derek. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, <laughs> I don't know about that. But, uh, introduction again. <laughs> Derek, tell me, um, yeah. your route to the bar, what is it? Yeah, let me let me try and do it succinctly, I think. Well, I didn't have a legal background. That's the, the thing most people ask you, which really means I didn't have any connection with the law. 
So I had to find out about it, I think, to get interested. And then I had to find out about how to come to the bar, which is what we're talking about. And I suppose most of us think we've got a fairly unique story, which is always true to an extent. But I think over the years, talking to people of my generation, my age, I think there are a number of things that always strike me as um, surprisingly familiar. Um, one of them is how many people were inspired by a program called Crown Court, which was a dramatization of what happens in a Crown Court. That's what it says on the on the tin, as it were. Uh, but it was done very authentically, and it had a lot of very good actors, some of whom went on to great things like David Suchard and so on. So it was very good. And if you happened to be at home in the afternoons because you were bunking off school pretending to be ill, then it was something that you got to watch on the only two channels which were then available. And it certainly piqued my interest. So it was something that I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. I could I could think about doing this. And I think with some hesitation, I then broached the subject with my uh, teacher. And I was at a big um, comprehensive school in Essex, which was not, I suppose, the, the usual route in the 1970s to the bar, which is more or less what I got told when I raised it with my teacher. Well, it's not really something that people from your background do. It wasn't that he was saying I couldn't do it, because, in fact, I think uh, he was very encouraging about many of the things that I wanted to experiment with and do public speaking and things like that at school. But it was a sort of that requires money and it requires a particular educational background, Oxbridge and so on. So really, you ought to think about something else. And I think he was trying to let me down gently and to say that it was overambitious for someone like me from my background at that particular point in time. And needless to say, and that's the other thing, I think, which comes out of a lot of my discussions with my contemporaries who had no connection with the law. It was the initial rebuff. It was someone telling you you couldn't do it that really inspired you to go on and say, well, hey, actually, I think I can and I'm going to and I'm going to find out how to do it. So that was really how I came to the bar. I think the story of what happened next and how I did it is perhaps something which, I don't know, it might come out later in the, in the evening in the discussions. But let me, let me hand over to Brie at this point and, and see whether her story was similar to mine. Strikingly similar, Derek. Absolutely, Crown Court. So I had wanted to be a vet. I had one of the only two personalities personality clashes I've had in my life with a biology teacher at school so I figured I couldn't be a vet and Crown Court inspired me to think about being a barrister. I knew absolutely no one connected to the law. I was 13 when I made the decision it's what I wanted to do. When I was about 16 a friend of my mum's, friend of a friend of a friend of a husband was a solicitor um, managed to arrange for me to spend two days with a female barrister to whom I owe a great debt um, because it sort of started to feel like it was possible. At the same time, like you, uh, the deputy head at my school told my parents explicitly that they should tell me to, or they should persuade me to lower my ambitions because I was trying to fly too high and I would burn my wings. My parents, knowing me as well as they did, told me exactly what she'd said <laughs> because they knew that the stubborn streak in me would absolutely drive me on even more. 
So very similar, no connections, very little understanding of what it was I actually wanted to do. Um, thought I wanted to do crime at that stage, still thought that until I got into pupillage, um, but very driven, one to do what they said I couldn't do. And by my ideas at that point about truth and justice and all that, all that sort of stuff. How about you, Toby? You're a different generation, maybe <laughs> not Crown Court. I, I feel, yeah, like I'm laying the side down, really, because I, I, you've said at 13 you wanted to, to be a barrister, and I, I can't say that I had that. What, what, what I didn't have growing up was financial security, and in my mind I thought that if you did something like law, you were bound to end up with a job that paid you all right and I'd be able to look after my mum, really, and that, that, that was where it came from from me. So I remember turning up to answer those questions at pupils interviews, why do you want to be a barrister? And I couldn't say that that's what I'd always wanted to do. Um, but I got some pretty poor GCSEs and then realised, look, if you want options, you've got to try and work hard and get some A-levels that can get you to a degree that can give you options. So I, I did that and I, I got, got some better A-levels, decided to do law because I thought it would lead me into a, a job. And then and then I didn't know whether to be a solicitor or a, or a barrister, really. Um, but... I had a had a weekend a weekend job lifeguarding at university, but I also had a weekend job in the mornings delivering newspapers, and uh, I did it. In fact, it's a good story. I, I had a Ford Fiesta that I bought for five hundred quid, and I sold it two years into tenancy for two grand when the government bought the scrappage scheme in. So I did quite nicely out of that Fiesta, but it also did my paper round, and I delivered newspapers to two barristers who who said got talking to them delivering their papers. Hey, what do you do? And I could see the pink ribbon on the desk and they always seemed to be working on a Sunday morning when I dropped their papers off. And they very kindly said, why don't you come and do a week or two with us? And so my first experience was Leeds Crown Court, Bradford Crown Court, and I absolutely loved it and thought, this is me, I'm sold, I, I want to be a criminal, criminal barrister. So sort of ended up at the criminal bar that way. But I think what I would take from that and what I would say to people is take any opportunity you can get because I ended up at the bar because I delivered some newspapers to some barristers, basically. Um, Mass, what's your story? Sure. Um, you know, it's really interesting to hear all of your stories, firstly. And thanks, Joe, for allowing me to be part of this conversation with all of these exceptional people. Um, my story is a bit more similar to Toby's in terms of the time when I decided. So I decided I wanted to be a barrister when I was in year 12. So my first year in sixth form um, and our sixth form had entered into a competition called the National Bar Mock Trial Competition. And it was the first time we'd ever entered. And basically what that was, was a mooting competition. So it was a mock trial in front of real judges in real courts. And I was selected to be one of our barristers. And I remember sort of coming home and, you know, like most people at that age, you're just sort of in a state of confusion about what you want to do next. Um, but to me, having done those mock trials, I was like, this isn't work. This is, this is fun. Um, and I remember coming back and saying to my parents, like, you know, you can relax now. I've decided what I want to do. I want to become a barrister. And, you know, the difficulty at that moment was trying to figure out sort of similar to what Derek said. It was about the perceptions at the bar. And, you know, to me, all of the messages I was getting when I was trying to figure out how to make that next step were all suggesting that I needed to go to Oxbridge. So what did I do? I worked really, really, really hard to get the grades I needed to apply. Um, I got the A's and I applied to Mansfield College in Oxford. Then a few months later, I got invited for an interview. So I got a little bit closer. And then a few months later, that letter comes. Unfortunately, we will not be offering you a place. And so I remember in that moment, um, 
you know, I almost had to start again because I, I saw Oxford as being the only route to the bar. And so as soon as Oxford wasn't possible, to me, I'd completely given up. Um, and at that stage, I did give up on a career at the bar. I still went to university. I still studied law um, because I'd already applied to do so. But I'd pretty much already made the decision that, you know, I'm going to go to uni and figure out what I wanted to do. And so, you know, while I was at university, I did lots of other stuff. Um, I worked as a football coach um, did some business, learned to trade the financial markets. But what I didn't do was anything that someone would do if they were trying to be a barrister. I didn't join the law society, the bar society, didn't do any mooting, um, apply for any legal work experience, um, whether it was mini pupillages or, 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 or law or law internships. And then, so my moment to actually coming back to the bar came after graduation and I just got an email from my old sixth form teacher, the one who entered us into that competition. And it basically just said, Matt, are you practicing as a barrister yet? Which was, a bit of a joke because he he was been my reference, so he knew exactly what I was doing. Um, but really, what he was trying to do was to encourage me. And I remember I just responded, sort of explaining the reasons why I'd not pursued a career at the bar. And he just said, "Mass, look, someone I know's just secured pupillage at the government legal department. I think they'll still, you know, respect and value your experiences, even though they're non-legal. Put an application in." And that was really. The start of my journey that application was eventually accepted and so um here we are so yeah anyway um it would be really good to hear joe your story as well i know um, a little bit about it but i'm sure it will be great for the benefit of the audience it's gonna be such a come down after that it really is mass um okay unlike all the rest of you i never intended to become a barrister uh, I was at a comprehensive school. Any of you know me will know that I was a child of a single parent and the only person to stay on at school after the age of 16. And although I was doing A-levels, my, uh, my careers advisor at my comp, uh, when asked about my future prospects, didn't, contem con didn't contemplate university at all. What she told me was I was bright enough to work in a bank, but I had too much attitude to work front of house. My mum was absolutely incandescent with rage and she took it upon herself to work out not only one I should go to university, but how I could get there. Um, and the only reason I did law was because if I was going to stay on and not earn money and go to uni, it had to be to do something that had a job at the end of it. And that's why it was law. I wanted to go to art school, but that was no way going to be an option for me if I was going to be a professional, which is what mum wanted me to be. So I did read law. And the only reason I applied to become a barrister is because my boyfriend, who I'd met at the age of 17, he's now my husband, um, worked out I was totally unemployable. And there was no way I could be a solicitor because I wasn't capable, not only of accepting a single instruction of what to do, but equally, my way of working was to party and politic and then work until the wee midnight hours, performing tutorials and then go off and party in politics again. And that really wasn't compatible with any lifestyle other than being self-employed and um, to use my gobbiness to best effect by being an advocate for other people. So that's why and how I became a barrister. So having identified why we want to become a barrister. I think I'm really interested in knowing what therefore nearly got in the way. So I'm going to come back to Mass 
One, because every time he talks to me, I found it so engrossing, but also because he may be nearer to the audience that are listening to this. So, Matt, you wanted to become a barrister. You've told us how you didn't get into Oxford, which you thought was effectively the guillotine. So what, if anything else, stood in the way of you actually becoming a barrister when you started to explore it? Sure. I think um, the answer to that question is an extension of sort of what I've said in terms of the Oxbridge. But really what that boils down to is the perception of who you need to be in order to become a barrister. Um, I think there's still a narrative at the bar of England and Wales, at least, that in order to become a practicing barrister, you need to have firstly gone to Oxbridge. Um, wherever you went, you need to have achieved the first class degree. Also, you need to look a certain way, potentially be a certain colour, come from a wealthy background, talk with a specific accent. I think these are often challenges which are faced by aspiring barristers from a wide range of backgrounds who were just told, you know, that they didn't go to a good enough university or um, law school's expensive because law school is expensive. Um, or aspiring barristers who are told that it's not about what they know, it's who they know. And you know, some of the BSB data supports that, actually, that, that statement actually. But also just generally, and I think this is something which affected me, was that when you go on Chambers websites, so if you wanna be a barrister, that's the first thing you're gonna do. You're gonna look on those organizations websites. But if you can't see anyone that looks anything like you or, or comes from a similar background to you, then it's difficult to envisage yourself taking on that role. So I think that was probably the biggest barrier for me. Um, but I think at the point when I have accessed and entered the profession after applying for that pupillage, um, I have had a really positive experience. And so in many ways, that sort of guides some of the work I do now and try to be as visible as possible. So that if there is somebody um, who you know looks something like me or comes from a similar background to me, they can see someone like me or you know even some of you and after hearing your stories and see, you know what, they're actually not so different to me after all. Maybe I could become a barrister. Excellent. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask what stories there are behind, for example, Derek, because it, we had a lecture last night that we gave at Four Paper Buildings to lots of Bridging the Bar candidates and also academy students. And I'm ashamed to say that by listening to my colleagues in Chambers, I learned that they weren't the people I thought they were. Um, they, most of them have got very standard accents now. I'd assumed pretty much all of them had gone to public school. And it wasn't until they were telling me their stories that I realised that in fact I had fallen into the trap of making assumptions about their background and also whether how they were now as senior members of the bar, whether they'd always been that confident and assured. So Derek, what about you? Is there a hidden side to you that we should look at as opposed to Derek Sweeting QC, Deputy High Court Judge and Chair of the Bar? What, what's, your, what's your hidden secret? Oh, I don't know where to start, really. I, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's probably right to say that just sort of picking up from what others have said, that when I was thinking about obstacles to coming to the, the Bar, I think money was certainly one of them. And the other was the sort of Oxbridge trope um, that Maz has mentioned. And it's, I think it's pretty depressing that that is still something that someone of his age thought was part of the, the sort of DNA of the bar, that you had to have gone to um, Oxbridge. 
I mean, in my case, what happened is that the teacher who told me that really it wasn't for me because you had to go to Oxbridge also not only kind of inspired me to go to the bar, but also made me think, well, then I better try and have a go. I hadn't been thinking about making an application to either Cambridge or Oxford before that. And I went on and I did it. I mean, I found out for myself, but what um, what I couldn't do was to do it in the way in which most people did it, which was, if particularly if they were at private school, which was to do it after they'd finished, you know, the sort of history boys type approach to it, doing it in your seventh term. So I had to make my application and in those days sit exams um, in in my fourth term. And having having said that, one of my teachers had rather put me off. There were others who, in fact, wanted to help at that stage. So that was a that was a great uh, help. I, I got in and then found myself with a gap year, um, which I had no idea what a gap year was in those days. And I had no money. Um, a bit like Toby, I was working as a lifeguard. And I was also working in McDonald's to try and make money as well. So you know, I did think the financial problem was going to be pretty significant. But in those days, you could join the army for a year if you had a university place. And that's what I did. And I ended up as a tank troop commander on what was then the inner German border, owing a little bit of time to the army, I think when I left, but uh, but that was what I did. So I suppose that might be my kind of secret on the way to the, <laughs> on the way to the bar, I ended up commanding a tank troop and so on. And in fact, when I came to the bar, because I still had money problems, I went back into the reserves and I spent a pretty happy sort of 20 years, in fact, jumping out of aircraft and things like that, because it was uh, I was in commando and airborne units and things. And I think without that money in the early years, I'd have I'd have found it quite difficult. So there we are. That was something you didn't know about me, perhaps, that (laughs) is a secret, but not really. What about you, Brie? Um, State educated, non-Oxbridge. Um, very politically active in the women's movement as a teenager. Um, recently thinking very much about going on Reclaim the Night uh, demos in the 70s and abortion rights stuff. So very, very... And, and I had very split messages from the women around me, some about you know selling out by wanting to go to the bar and others about changing it from the inside. So, So for me there was a very strong sense of not wanting to become what the bar was as I perceived it to be, but wanting to come in and be a different sort of person doing it, not have it change me, not assimilate um, in that way. So I think what for me was very striking was that sort of trying to stay me I was I was a woman in the middle of eighties, as you know, Joe. There weren't so many of us at the bar as there are now, and it's getting better and better. Um, so I was very uncompromising, riding a motorbike. I have my tattoos, you know, all sorts of things that just didn't fit. And I was very clear it wasn't my club. And in a sense, it was incredibly welcoming. I'm I was amazed at how accepting most of it was. Some of it was very not accepting. Um, But, yeah, I was very rigid about staying me and trying to make more space in it. I'm going to pick up the baton there because there's clearly a reason why Brie and I are now friends because although we didn't know one another at that time, we would have been manning the barricades, I think, together as legal observers. 
I only became a barrister for one reason and one reason only, and that's because politics was really important to me. In the 80s, it was an era where there were the haves and the have-nots. Thatcher had been in power uh, for 10 years and we'd had the miners' strike. And the only reason I intended to become a barrister was to be a legal aid activist as a barrister to make a difference to the society that I was part of. And so um, I was really clear what type of chambers I was going to become part of. And that's what led me to Took's Court, which was Michael Mansfield QC's set. And we were the radical left. And like you, I was very clear that I was going to be changing the world, not the world changing me. So. Um, I refused to dress in the lady dye outfits that were the fashion of the time with the pie crust colours and the pearls. I had my flicky wing eyeliner, my bright red lipstick and um, multiple ear piercings and wore really severe male type suits um, so that I was the antithesis of everything I saw around me. And I did break down walls and barriers to go into court, but kept my charm with me. And that's something I want to pick up the conversation with, because I think one of the reasons why I found the bar really welcoming was before you became a barrister in court to use your um, skills to advocate for other people, you needed to understand that as a barrister, you were part of a system. So you needed to get on with the ushers. You needed to get on, on with the clerks. You needed to work out how you're going to get on the list to get that case done to go and do the other in order to earn the money. And I found that the people I was encountering in the court service were much more like the background I come from. And they made me not only feel welcome, but absolutely one of them. So I always got the Queen Bee treatment. And I think that just gave me that edge when I went into court, which was this is going to work because these are the people that I am working with. And if you're against me, you know, my lord, your honour, then that's something that we're going to have to work on together because one way or the other, I'm going to have my say. So I think that's when we're talking about being a barrister, it's really important that we identify that we work as part of a team, you know, with a client, but also with a solicitor and also part of the court service. And, and that's why, as I hope we'll come on to talk about, one of the key skills that each of us bring to the job is an ability to communicate and to get on with everyone from all walks of life, which is precisely why we need people from all walks of life being barristers, because real life doesn't end, you know, inside a courtroom or as soon as you go out. It's what we, it's, it's the body we inhabit to make sure that we can talk to people to find their story to best represent them. So I'll get off my soapbox temporarily, but um, it's just really lovely to hear so many stories where there's actually a resonance in in why we are where we are, even though um, we are different ages, different backgrounds, different sexualities, different colours. So, Toby, you're the one left on this subject. Is there anything you'd like to add on, you know, whether having come to the bar, your it it was what you thought it would be from the outside? I don't know what I thought it would be I didn't go to I didn't travel I bet I traveled to London less than five times in my life before I came down to start doing call sessions at Lincoln's Inn um, as you had to do I think 12 and it felt like something out of Harry Potter and uh, I remember uh, to this day on call night even sitting on top table at Lincoln's Inn and um, somebody turning to me I think it was a venture I don't know saying you know where are you from and I sort of thought well I could try and explain that I'm from a tiny village that I've never heard of or so I'm from between Leeds and Manchester and this this chap said to me oh well done haven't you haven't you done well as it as if it was some sort of 
affliction that I was from between Leeds and Manchester, you know, and we only just got electricity. Um, yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting about what Mass was saying about, you know, looking at what you think about people. But I look probably like most people would expect a barrister to, to do because I'm a white male and I'm probably now classed as middle class. But I felt like a complete um, fish out of water at Lincoln's Inn sitting in that big hall surrounded by people I didn't feel comfortable with at all. But you probably would, people wouldn't have looked at me and thought he doesn't, he looks uncomfortable, but I really did. And it, and so, uh, yeah, I was a bit taken aback by it all really. But then starting at the bar, you realize that there's, there is, people are normal and it is really just a series of interactions and relationships. And, and I've tried to work on the basis that I treat people the way I would expect to be treated. And if you do that, I don't think you can go far, far wrong at the bar. And that's everybody you know, and there's nothing worse than people who think that they can talk down to court staff or people that they perceive to be below them. It, it's just terrible. And I don't think there's too much of that at the bar anymore. Certainly not where I practice, there isn't. Um, so I think in a sense of thinking about what barriers were for me and what I perceived it to be, I, I thought I thought I'd just take it as it, as it as it comes. And then when I got to Lincoln's Inn, I was very scared <laughs> and it was all new. But I've enjoyed I've enjoyed every every minute of it. So I have no complaints. Jack, but how come you're now doing the work you do when I think you said that it was it was crime that you wanted to be? How come you've made that switch? Yeah, um yeah, again I'll be brutally honest and I hope my tutors from bar school are not watching this, but I am um, really didn't pay attention in civil procedure because I thought that is not for me. I've done criminal mini pupilages, I thought I want to be a jury advocate. And um I started doing crime and I had a wonderful criminal pupillage um with my pupil master Richard Alvin and naming Richard Woolfall and embarrassing me it was, it was lovely and he always jokes to me now he says look at look at the amazing civil practice you've got that I got for you but he, all he did was crime um uh and it, it was brilliant but I quickly realized um that I got you know I was getting paid in a day what I get for three or four days in the criminal courts and it was simply a matter of what do I think I'm going to have more financial security going forward for me, for my mum at the time, at the time, it's really just the two of us. So I, um, I switched to, 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 to PI um, and I really enjoy it. And I love representing people who have been badly injured and, and trying to help them and things like that. But I think crime is an incredible place to start. And I think it's a shame that, that people are pushed out of publicly funded work um, because of a lack of funding into other areas. I spent my first six months in chambers doing five magistrates' courts uh, sessions, tr trials a, a, a day in Calderdale Mags in Halifax. And, you know, it was great practice to be handed a bag. Even when you got it the night before, you prepped it and then you'd turn up at court and say, oh, you got the wrong bag, here's another bag. And you, you'd be calling witnesses just having not read their statements, you know, what's your name, right, what happened in this shoplifting or whatever. It's a brilliant um, practice for people for trials future down you know down the line so I think crime is brilliant and I, I think it I love doing it and I, I'd love what I do now but I think if all things were being equal and finance didn't come into it I'd still be a criminal practitioner although my mates that do crime would probably say you're useless so you're better off out of it <laughs> well can I just picking up there I think what may, might be helpful for the audience is just explaining the different types of work you can do at the bar because if they've watched Silk or, you know, if they've watched, if they're old enough and they've caught a, 
old reruns of Rumpel, they may have really clear ideas. They think about what being a barrister is like, which means going to court, basically. But we all know at the bar that there are so many different ways of being a barrister, which feeds to different strengths. So I, I can talk a little bit about what my courtroom practice is, but people will know a little bit more about that. Bree, can you tell us what does your day-to-day -day life as a barrister involve in terms of what you do? Um, well, the subject matter mostly is property disputes, and that can be in a commercial context. It can be residential property. It can also be which really gives you a view, a window on human beings um, following death. You know, nice blended family, bit of death and a property to fight over. That brings out the best in people, not. Um, so any aspect of property, I suppose what I would say to people is most of us, as, as our stories have said, sort of access the idea of the justice system in relation to crime. But actually, absolutely anything that human beings do, don't do, do to each other, do to the world, think about, create, all of that generates law. And there is litigation disputes around every single facet of that. So the subject matter is only one thing. And as you've alluded to, Joe, what you actually spend your time doing, the skills you use vary dramatically between different areas of practice. So for me doing property, yes, there's advocacy and I love advocacy. I loved it when I started out doing crime. But I then realized I also really enjoyed the more sort of academic side of the sort of researching the law and explaining and unpacking property law for people to understand their disputes and the options and advise them. The, what I call intellectual jigsaw puzzles of drafting pleadings, which are the documents that set out for the court, what the dispute is about, the primary facts it's rest on, that sort of thing. The human interaction, the client handling. So for me, quite a few of the concepts that I'm dealing with are really complicated because we've got judge-made law, the government putting in statutory overlays that conflict with each other and conflict with the judge-made law make it very complicated. So for me, there's a lot about unpacking things, simplifying things, helping a client who may have been dragged into proceedings as a defendant, helping them understand what's going on, helping them make such choices as need to be made along the way so that they understand how they got there when they get to the end of that process and the whole time looking to find creative, positive compromises and ways to resolve a dispute to save everyone the time, money and hassle. So it's using strategy, academic skill, communication skills. And I love for me in property, it's a really good balance across that whole range. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. And what about you, Mass? Um, that was really good to hear from you, Brie, about your experiences. And I think mine aren't too dissimilar in terms of the sorts of work that I've done. So I'm amongst the 20% approximately of barristers that are employed um, rather than self-employed. So I'm employed by the government legal department. And so ultimately what that means is advising the government on basically anything that they want to do. Um, so during my pupillage, which is your first year of practical training, I spent six months on secondment 
um, at the self-employed bar. And that's quite usual for a government legal department pupil before they return to the government to, 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 to their ordinary job. And during that period, I applied to a place called Blackstone Chambers. And the reason I applied there was actually to get some broader experience. And so while I was at Blackstone, I did some public, but then I also got to experience a lot more commercial work um, some sport work, which I believe Derek does some of. So maybe we could go to Derek next. Um, also some financial regula reg regulation work. Um, so really a broad mixture of, of work across different parts of the bar. And I think ultimately, as Bree has outlined, you know, different, as different types of work really focus or require different skills. So ultimately, communication is going to be key in all of those areas of the bar. But whether written communication or oral communication is more important may depend on just how much, you know, your area of law has you in court. Um, and I think those areas which I've outlined, really, there's a mixture across them. So Derek, it'd be good to hear a little bit about you and, and your practice. Yes, well, I suppose the first thing to say is I've kind of changed direction a few times over the years, because having having been inspired by Crown Court, I, I wasn't not going to do it. So I did go and do criminal work. And I ended up doing it for a long time, you know, it's about 15 years. And during that time, I did all the kind of things that I thought I'd wanted to come to the bar to do, and I'm glad I did. So you know, I ended up doing murders and things like that as a junior at that stage, and then being instructed by the serious fraud office when it came into being and so on, and ended up doing a lot of serious fraud. I then stopped doing crime for various reasons, and I started to do a lot more commercial and construction work, particularly in the um, the technology and construction court, the official referees, as it was when I started. And that's what I was doing when I took Silk. And after that, I carried on doing it for a while, but I ended up doing quite a lot of work for the government. And that turned eventually into a lot of damages and public law work, particularly after the Iraq war. So defending the UK effectively against claims which were brought by claimants from Iraq and from Afghanistan. But at the same time, my own claimant work focused more and more on clinical negligence. And most of it, are, it is comprised really of the clinical negligence cases which result in the biggest awards. So those are usually children who are, are damaged at birth. Um, quite often they have cerebral palsy. And those are amazing cases because I mean, what's remarkable about them is the way in which families react. You know, you have these children who are often terribly damaged, but they are really important members of their families. And, you know, they're much loved despite all of that. It's a very inspiring thing to be doing, even though we have to do it in the context of a, a sort of bet the farm piece of litigation where you win or lose based on negligence. And when you do win, you know, the damages run to millions and millions of pounds because often these children have very long life expectancies, notwithstanding their injuries, and they need to be cared for. But the, the sense of relief on the part of parents when they do get a regime which can be funded, a regime of care, which is going to be there after they've gone, which is what they're really worried about for their children, is amazingly satisfying. I think. And I also do a lot of significant um, serious personal injury work, which is really an adjunct to that. And some of that is to do with sport, you know, boxes who get brain imaged, damaged and that sort of thing and have brain imagery as a result. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, that that's a sort of 
not an atypical one. I mean, going back to a point perhaps that Joe was making earlier, I think, and, and Bria just made, you often come to the bar, I think, having fixed views about my, what you might want to do, you know, as Toby was saying, and then you find you get completely fascinated by something else, and that becomes satisfying for reasons you didn't anticipate. And equally, I suppose my own story shows that you can make pretty significant changes over the course of your career to reflect growing interests or areas of work to which you get drawn, as long as you're intellectually curious and prepared to do the work. And I think no one is going to tell you who's been at the bar that it's not hard work. But the real point is it's extremely satisfying work, which I think is a constant theme that you get from people who are reflecting on their careers. I mean, I certainly didn't intend to end up being a child protection silk or more accurately, a child abuse silk. I, like I said, I wanted to be an employment lawyer, but acting for the unions and the workers, not the employers. Um, and the only reason I started doing family work was because I was totally skint and I needed to earn money in order to stay. And so at that point, you could do domestic violence injunctions, which meant you got cash quickly, which I needed in order to pay the rent. And only by doing that type of work did I start to get in really curious about the children that I could see hanging around um, the feet of the women I was representing. And I just started wondering and worrying, actually, more precisely about what happened to them once they left the courtroom. And having always turned my face against doing family, because as you may have gathered, um, I was a political animal, as I've said, I'd refused to do family law because I thought that's what women did if they became lawyers. So I'd refused to take it at university. I'd refused to take it at bar school. I ran a mile from any chambers um, making me do that as part of my pupillage. But when I found that it was work I had to do, I discovered a world that was so rich in the desire to do right for the most vulnerable in our society that it gave me the passion that I think meant that drove me forward to become successful. I think I was a pretty average employment barrister, um, but I, I didn't have that drive to make a difference because I still hadn't found my feet. But once I started working in child protection, I was so energized by what I was doing that the ambition that was always there then had a real focus. And that was what I think drove me to become incredibly successful, not because I wanted success per se for me, but because I always wanted to make a difference in the case I was doing. So there was no, in my book, there was no unwinnable case ever. It would just be if I hadn't done a good enough job. And I was always determined to do that job as well as I could possibly be, which is why I invested my all into it. So that's, I think, a message you're hearing from all of us if you're tuning in. When you're thinking about coming to the bar, keep your options open, because in fact, what we need from you as future applicants is probably the ability to be self-motivated. You've got to be a self-motivated learner, which means that you need to ask the questions that no one else is asking. You need to be self-driven in terms of not clocking off when the clock says you're tired, but clocking off when you think you've done the work in order to get to court the next day to do the best job you can. And you need to be perpetually curious and questioning and the ability, I think, to cope with rejection. Because what we've not talked around about around this conversation is how being a barrister is also about dealing with rejection because there's a winner and a loser in every case. 
there are there's no point at which you both come out happy ordinarily and so coping with rejection you're the losing side is something you're going to have to deal with which is why becoming a barrister is a whole series of applications and knockbacks applications and persistence and that sense of being both determined but obstinate and stubborn and driven and prepared to ask for advice I think that's something we can probably agree on, isn't it? That although we're self-employed, so therefore we work as individuals, none of us will be able to do the job we do if we didn't feel comfortable turning to other people for advice, either more senior or the same, to give us that extra boost to go forward to the next stage. Is that something that we'd agree on? That although that we are individuals, we operate within a system where you need to have that sense of camaraderie to get you through. Absolutely. I would say, although there are aspects of the sort of Harry Potter version of the clubability of the bar that um, Toby referred to that make me deeply uncomfortable and feel it's not my club, the good side of the clubability is you can turn to pretty well, I would say, at least 95% of the bar and say, can I just run this by you? Can I just talk through something through with you? What do you think about this? And people pull together. And it's not just about, you know, we are self-employed individuals. That happens within chambers, but it happens across. You're in a robing room trying to get your head around something. An ethical problem comes up. Another member of the bar will talk it through with you. Um, and And I always find with pupils, persuading pupils to actually trust that you know they're having an inquiring mind asking themselves the right questions and then engaging in a discussion with you is what demonstrates that they have what you want in a barrister the mind that's thinking it through that's asking the questions and the will to reach out and the bravery to reach out for any resources you need to sort it out and move it forward that's that's what we do all the time yeah so if around this group, I mean, we're talking about how we've come to the bar and what we're doing. I think what I'd really like to move on to is where we see the bar going in the course of the next five years or so. Um, because one of the reasons we're having this conversation is to try to advertise the fact that you don't have to be white, middle class, male, Oxbridge educated, don't have to have a private background in terms of funding. There are funding issues we need to address and overcome. And that's one of the things I think we need to talk about in terms of the scholarships that we can offer and mentoring that we can offer. So if we're looking at what we want the bar to be, Derek, you know, there you are, you're the chair of the bar. What do you want the bar to be in five years time? Well, I want the bar to be what I'd hoped it would be at a at an earlier stage, I think, looking looking back to when I came to the bar and was called to the bar in 1983. So I think progress has been very slow in some areas. It's been much quicker in others. So the set I joined was quite small, which was not unusual. We've now got much bigger sets, which I think was just a sort of business imperative. But there were three women in my set, um, two of them in the the year above me, as it were. And of course, that's radically changed. So we now do have effectively 50-50 entrance between, um, entrance between men and women to the bar at the bottom end. In certain sections of the bar, not, not in, uh, across the bar, we do then find there's a big drop-off of women. They fall off a cliff in their mid-30s. 
And I think that's a lot to do with the distribution of caring responsibilities and maternity leave and so on. And that's a that's a problem for the bar. We have latterly come, I think, to recognise the nature of the problem that we have with diversity at the bar. And that's something which is, has been very high on my agenda and will continue to be throughout the year. And it just isn't sufficient to say, well, this might sort itself out on a societal basis if we wait 20, 25 years. We've got to do more than that. And we've got to be um, active around it. I think we're going to have to set targets, not quotas, but targets. And we're going to have to hold ourselves to our aspirations in relation to diversity. And we're going to have to be honest about things, about what BAME means, whether that's actually a cosmetic category, whether it disguises the fact that there's there's a massive underrepresentation of um, black members of our community at the bar still. And there are lots and lots of success stories. Maz is, is one of them. But there are also lots of people who want to come to the bar would be um, valuable members of the bar from you know a black background and don't make it or are put off for lots of the reasons that we've discussed, which are still there and which shouldn't be. So we need to address all of those things and we need to make sure that we're 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 making sure that we get the best talent. But having said all that, I think the important thing to bear in mind is the bar is a is a pretty small profession. And there are only north of 400 pupillages of, available a year. It's not gone up even though the bar has got bigger partly to do with funding. And I think we have to be careful about who we're selecting for the bar and making sure that it's it's uh, an offer which is made to everyone on a non-discriminatory basis and that we fund people properly so that people are not thinking I can't come I can't come to the bar or I can't not come to the bar because of, of funding. So I think there are issues around when you qualify, when you get to call yourself a barrister, who the inns give their money to by way of scholarships, which all need to be approached honestly. So I think, uh, to come back to the question, I think in five years' time, I'd like to see a bar, bar which had made real progress in relation to a lot of those issues, really reflecting the society we live in. And also a bar that was thriving and in its publicly funded areas was properly funded by the government, uh, acknowledging its responsibilities in that area. I mean, I got, came to the Bar Council, I think, in about 2010, because I thought that we were going to embark on a period of decline. And I think I'm sad to say, I think that's right, that austerity was disastrous for lots of areas of our society, including the legal system. And I think the pandemic has just made us realise that that was the case and that we've got to change. So although the pandemic has been a terrible time and a miserable time for many people, it's also given us an opportunity to reflect and do things differently and make wiser decisions going forward. And there are a lot of decisions we can make about the bar, I think, which can be better informed and wiser. Give us some examples. I think we can be a, a lot more um, honest, I think, about what the distribution of our diverse membership across the bar is. I mean, it's not even a far too, for far too long, I think, that the publicly funded bar has been a sort of destination for people from ethnic minority backgrounds. And I think we need to be honest about why that's the case and why some bits of the bar are still what people thought they were years ago, you know, dominated by people from private schools, 
perhaps Oxbridge, and also from a particular ethnic and social background. So I think we've got to look at that. We've got to look at social mobility as well. So those are all things which I think are being talked about now. I mean, I think things like bridging the bar and the many other groups now within the bar and outside of the bar that are, are thinking about these issues and holding the leadership of the bar and other institutions to account are part of that change. And, and that's what we've got to embrace. And I think those of us who came to the bar at a very different time and have those sort of backgrounds, I mean, white middle-class man, I suppose, might, might describe me on any of you now, but and we ought to be allies of the change which is necessary and which I think genuinely most of us would like to see because we don't want a bar that doesn't look like the rest of society that doesn't look like the 40% of people in London, for example, who are not white and who don't come from a, a white middle-class background. And those are all challenges. So I think that's definitely what we, we need to commit ourselves to. Um, Toby, what about you? I mean, you've, um, you've come more recently, I think, to recognising that you don't need to apologise what what you now appear to be but you can use your skills to attract other people tell us what you think can be done by people in your position to make sure that you can you can spread the word yeah i i think i've come to realize that because of brie basically <laughs> we well, i've taken part in the bar council leadership program which has been absolutely brilliant and Ruth and Caroline at Deeds and Words running it with brie have been amazing they've really opened a lot of eyes i've been part of a small group of of nine people across different practice areas um, it, thrown together on MS teams because we can't all be in the same place during the pandemic and we've all become good friends. Everyone's got different takes on things. And I, I felt in that group quite a bit of a fraud, really, because I've, you know, I've bobbled through the bar, you know, playing football, you know, going out for a drink and finding it quite easy, really. And so I've sort of been having to say to Brie, like, I feel like, a, what, what am I doing here? What am I adding? And it's taken Bree saying to me, look, you know, you've got a platform that you can use to make me think about how, how we do that. And my, uh, my, my, my group on, on the Bar Council Leadership Programme, we, we've recently, in the last week, we've set up a, a Twitter account called uh, My Learned Friends. And we've been looking at um, issues of career progression, retention, inclusion and diversity. Just one issue that's come up this week is a return to, to, to court, you know, in-person hearings. And so we've been running a poll on that to try and look at data. 55% of the people that answered that said um, that, that it will be negative for them. And then we're trying to look at the reasons behind that so that we can try and drive some positive change. But I think a lot of it is because people have caring responsibilities. Uh, you know, people, I'm in Leeds. I've done a trial remotely in the last week in London from home, which has meant that I've been able to see my son after and before that. And you know, your life is totally different. It opens up a different market when you can do things remotely. So there's some really important issues about how we conduct things going forward. And there's a lot of arguments, say there's a lot of hearings that could take place remotely still, which would give people a better work-life balance. It wouldn't mean they were paying 300 quid for a return to get to London from Leeds, paying 300 quid a night to stay in a hotel or whatever. Um, so, so I think there's some important work to be done, to be done there. And, and um, the leadership programs helping with that, um, the bar council and the SBAs and everybody trying to get everyone joined up thinking. We, on my circuit, we've got a brilliant diversity outreach program that Glenn Parsons is, is running and doing some brilliant work with. Um, 
Uh, and I, I, I'm a secretary of a, of a fund called the Henry Scott Fund, which I can take absolutely no credit for setting up because Henry Scott was a leader of the Northeastern Circuit in about the 1960s. And what used to happen was that when you became a judge uh, or, or, or a, a QC, you bought circuit a piece of silver. And that probably sounds ridiculous to people, but that's, that's what used to happen. And Hen Henry Scott decided that, in fact, you should give money towards supporting pupils coming through who need some help getting on their on their feet. And so we have this fund, which has got four trustees on circuit, and I, I'm the secretary of it. And the idea is that when you come to the bar, if you're struggling, I didn't get a scholarship from Lincoln's Inn to do bar school. And, and a lot of people come with a lot of debt now. And it just helps you with an interest-free loan when you first start try and get on your feet um, and things like that, I think are, are driving positive change and making the bar more representative, um, especially with all these initiatives that Mass is, is driving through as well. And I feel like a complete failure listening to everything that he's done. Yeah, we do, we do with Mass. <laughs> Mass, Mass is already one of, our, one of our star icons. We've got, I'm going to come to him last because I want to save with all humility and with all credit to, to Bree, I'm going to save Mass to last because he is the future of the bar. But so Bree, um, tell me, um, what can we do and what are we doing to try to make the bar as inclusive as it should be? Oh, there, it feels to me like we've reached a point where there's an opportunity for serious movement forward. There's been a lot of work done over the last 20 years about entry level that's not cracked. Maz is a fantastic example of someone who's still working on that. But actually, 20 years ago, someone without the privilege of seniority at, Mac, at Maz's level wouldn't have had the impact he's able to have now. So there's already been that shift and change. But for me, we're at a critical point. We've done all that work about entry, but we actually have to then ensure that the people we get in and continuing all that good work then rise up. So Toby's mentioned the Bar Council Leadership Programme, which I'm very involved in. Full credit to the Bar Council for absolutely getting on board with that. We have a rich cohort of 36 that flip on, on its head the underrepresentation at the bar in terms of gender, race, sexual orientation, disability, the works people that hopefully we are empowering to step up and see themselves as leaders, mm -hmm. see themselves able to give voice to their lived experience, their perception, their passions, their drivers that brought them to the bar. Because at the end of the day, a strong independent bar is not only important for the bar, it's much, much bigger than that. It's a fundamental part of a civilized society that there's a properly functioning justice system. And we need an independent bar to make that happen in this country. Barristers then go on an impact in politics, in education, in every part of society's engagement. And so actually making sure that the diverse lawyers that come in at masses level don't get crushed don't get assimilated, but actually make the bar richer, wider. I think I described it when we talked about it as sort of using our, all of our elbows to just push and stretch the space and make space for all types of society to come in. Because what we need to do, need is a bar that really represents and reflects society to make sure the justice system does and serves everybody properly. 
with all types of voices heard. So, yeah, the leadership program. And for me, there's stuff about creating safe places where people can have the conversations, ensure that they are robust enough to, to do the work, and also the opening up of networks that encourages the discussion. One other thing, if you'll let me say it, I think, so looking, say, at Derek and I, we have traveled a journey. We weren't typical of the bar when we came to it, but we are now both very privileged by our seniority in our position. We are both white. I certainly came from lower middle class background. So whilst there's been a battle about being female and being queer at the bar, Equally, I've had an awful lot of privilege and I have to be prepared to say it's not a perfect meritocracy. You can't run with this idea that the, the best talent will rise to the top because whilst talent is a significant element, there are so many other things at play in terms of the opportunities, your understanding of the opportunities and your ability to recognize them when they cost, cross your path. You having the sort of strength and robustness within yourself to sustain constantly looking for them and trying to maximize on them. So many things you need beyond that. So those of us who got to the top have to be prepared to recognize we may not be the very best. I am sure there are many more who are better than me who could have been real estate silk of the year or whatever. And actually, I have to be prepared to acknowledge that and make space and look to pull other people up, even though they don't look and sound like me. Excellent. Okay, Mass, I've given you a massive build up here. You are, um, <laughs> Go for it. All right. All of your Go introductions ahead. would be having yeah, um, tell me tell me how it's come to be and why we're looking to it as an example of um, what we can look forward to. Sure. Um, Bridging the bar, how it has came to be. Um, firstly, a lot of that is down to you, Joe. So I'm really happy for you to ask that question so I can put it on record, really. Um, you know, there was a point where I was doing lots of talking about diversifying the legal profession because it's important to me. Um, and as Derek has already alluded to, some of the numbers just are in, they need real improvement. So for example, while I was a pupil between 2019 to 2020, the BSB data shows that there was only 12 other black pupils. Um, and you do feel it whilst you're, you're in the bar and sort of piggybacking on something which Bree just said about not necessarily having to accept that we're not necessarily the best. Um, the same data also shows that a black person who's applying for pupillage, who has the exact same grades as a white person at undergraduate level and um, at bar school, they have around half the chance of securing pupillage than their white counterparts. So that's sort of the setting, I suppose. Um, and one of the reasons why, you know, I'm so passionate about ensuring that we can um, have, get to a position where there is equal access to opportunities. And that's ultimately bridging the bar's aim. And something which I think all of you have touched upon is about how beneficial it is if we have a bar that represents society. And the first thing you'll see on Bridging the Bar's website is the statement that a bar that represents society also benefits society. So yeah, that's sort of um, just to sort of add on some of those comments because I think what everyone has said was so powerful. But just turn into the story now of how Bridging the Bar was set up. Um, so it actually started with, I believe, a lecture which you gave, Professor Joe, um, when you spoke about different people at the bar who were doing 
work at this space and it was a Gresham lecture and I didn't actually see the lecture myself but afterwards I received a tweet from you and you sort of said you know here's a list of some of my stars at the bar and it was another moment where you know I was going red again um and I was like am I really supposed to be on this list and there was some real heroes on there professor professor current professor Leslie Thomas QC as well as loads of other people and I remember thinking to myself firstly like have you made a mistake um because we, we'd never even met um and I think I followed up and I said something along the lines of you know really appreciate um your message I'm not sure I deserve to be on that list um and you responded then and this was really the trigger for Bridge in the Bar because there was two parts of your message the first message the first part said um mass you know you're doing great work tell me what more I can do to help and then the second part was we need to do more than just talk so now just breaking down the first part I think when I when I heard that we need to do more than you know um what can I do to help um it occurred to me you know you're a silk you're highly accomplished you've been given the key to the city of London and you've got all of these you never gave yourself an introduction but I'm doing one for you now um, <laughs> and, and also being a being a QC I, I imagine you know you're you're charging <laughs> more than I do as a pupil anyway and so the time you know the point was your time I shouldn't take it for granted um, and the second part where you said we need to do more than just talk and I realized one of the things I'm doing a lot of is talking and I think that week I'd just given a talk at Middle Temple um, um, and I thought to myself, you know, there has to be more I can be doing in this space. And so I went away and I just said to myself, I'm not going to reply to J Professor Joe's message until I have something substantive. And so I went away and I thought about it for a while. Um, and the first thing that came to my mind was, well, you know what, like chambers are in control of their own recruiting practices. So what can someone like me, I'm a pupil right at the beginning, how can I get them to change? And um, obviously I was coming to a negative on that answer. And then I thought to myself, actually, there's lots of great work that is being done in the other side of the legal profession with, with, with solicitors and lots of organizations which are having an impact and changing the numbers. And I thought to myself, well, actually, there's a business model there for success, which can be translated to the bar. So why, why not give it a go? Um, and ultimately from that thinking process, Bridging the Bar was born. And um, a couple of months later, you received the call from me and I was like, Professor Joe, we need you, we need you to sign up as a champion. We need you to help us deliver this to the world. And if I remember rightly, you just said, of course. Um, so that's really the story. Now, what's Bridging the Bar? You know, I want Bridging the Bar to be an advocate for the underrepresented at the bar. And I want us to really make it our responsibility to ensure that this conversation that we're having now and the conversations that are happening at the bar now isn't just a trend and it's something which we continue to do until the problems are resolved. And so we're working on a number of initiatives from work experience to mentoring to trying to provide financial support to ensure that people from statistically underrepresented groups um, have a fair shot at becoming barristers. I can't think of any better way to end this lecture. I think what Mass has just said illustrates how important it is for everyone at the bar to take responsibility for making a difference. It's a non-delegable duty to make sure that we reach out to pull people up the ladder that we're already climbing. And that means that you're not just waiting to be asked. You should be out there looking for the people to offer support to. 
And that goes beyond people that are at the bar. It goes as far to going to schools. It means going to academies. It means telling people what the bar is about and what you are doing as a barrister and why you should be, as you are describing yourself, as you were at 17, not as you are now, mature going on in the profession. Because when we look at see what mass has done when the challenge was thrown down and what is achieved in a year, it shows how much with ability and vision and persistency and tenacity we can actually do if we, all of us, try to invest time in the future of the bar. Because I'm not going to be around here in 10 years' time. I'm going to be doing something different. I'll be hammering silver, having more tattoos, having more ear piercings, joining Brie on a motorbike going off somewhere. Derek could be off on some, I don't know, beach somewhere or driving a tank. Toby would be, you know, setting up his own football team, but, you know, preferably with a few judges um, knocking around on and him having QC on his shoulders. Mass is the person who shows us where the bar is going. And Mass, I am truly grateful that Gresham was able to give me a platform to say what I wanted to say. And that's really the point at which I'd like to wrap up because this marks the end of my four years as Gresham Professor of Law. It has been a really massive learning curve. I started off in my first year trying to explain what family law is about, but then I realised that this platform gave me a chance to say and do so much more. It's given me a reach beyond that which I'd imagined when I took up the, um, the, the role, and it's given me a chance to talk to people I would never have met. And I would like to thank Gresham for that opportunity, and I'd like to think that I've done something as a result in my role here. I could not be more delighted that my friend and colleague, Leslie Thomas, is the person that follows on. If there's anyone I wanted to hand the baton over to, then Leslie is my man, because I know he will carry on talking truth to power. I know that every time he's on screen, he is someone who the likes of Mass can look at and think I wanna be that man. And every time Leslie talks to me, I know that Gresham is in the right hands. So I would like to say thank you very much to my guests indeed for joining me tonight. Thank you for giving me the chance to end my tenureship on what I think is the most important challenge that the bar has to face, which is making sure that we do more for more by including more within our profession, because there is frankly nothing better as a career than becoming a barrister and every day trying to make life better for someone that you are acting for. Because that way you are investing back into the society. We need to be healthier, fitter, stronger, and kinder to one another to make sure that we do the best. So thank you very, very much indeed. Mass, Derek, Toby, Bree, it's been a total delight to share this slot with you. Um, thank you to the Gresham staff that have supported me over the course of the last four years. And thank you to the Gresham audience. Um, I'm not leaving entirely. Um, Gresham is too important to me to cease to have an involvement. I'm now the Emeritus Professor of Law. I've become a fellow. I'm a trustee. I'm active behind the scenes and I may yet come back to do a few lectures. But it is an amazing platform for change. And I just want to encourage everyone to make sure they follow the lectures of Leslie, that they look at the lectures in the past and they follow my colleagues because Gresham is a superb free resource of the most high quality speakers you can hope to have on your screens or go to see in person. 
and everyone generally wants to pass their knowledge on to you in the best way possible. So thank you for making part of the Gresham family. I really appreciated it.